Good morning, Gate City Vineyard. I want to thank every one of you for joining us uh, online on this fine Sunday morning. Um, it's good to be back. I believe it's been about three weeks since I was on this side of things. And um, over the past three weeks, I've been on vacation. Uh, I needed to take some much uh, time off in order to spend some quality time with my family. Uh, to just press the pause button on the ongoing demands of, of ministry, as well as spend some quality time, some uninterrupted time with the Lord. So it was great to be able to get away for a few weeks and, and just be, but at the same time, it's really good to be back uh, with everyone as well. Now, before we get into the message and the word this morning, uh, I want to give a big thank you uh, to Dr. Joy Thomas and Melinda Graham and Chris Larson for each respectively bringing the message over the past three weeks. Uh, I thought all three of them did a smashing job and smashing being British slang for they did an incredible job. So how about everyone right now, if you would, in the comment sections below, how about typing in Joy, Melinda and Chris you all did a smashing job, smashing job. So again, thank you three for uh, taking the time to share with us. And again, you did an amazing job. Now, before my three weeks off, I felt that towards the end of the summer uh, and leading up into the first part of the fall, this, this time that we're in now, that we at GCV, that we needed to do more of an expository uh, a book study. We, we need to pick a certain book out of the Bible and, and really dive in and dig in and see what that book has for us and what we can learn from it. And, um, you know, oftentimes we do more of a topical study. But again, I felt like that we needed to do a, a book study, pick a book of the Bible and, and really dive in. And so one of the goals that I had during my three weeks off was to take some time and to pray and to seek the Lord to figure out what book of the Bible that we needed to dive into and, and digest and, and explore. And I'll go ahead and admit to you, I didn't have a clue as to what book that we should study uh, before my vacation, but I got my answer. I, I kid you not, within about a day or two, no more than two days into the start of my vacation, um, I started receiving emails and Facebook messages uh, from certain people in the church. It seems like some of you guys didn't get the email from the elders requesting that you guys didn't text me <laughs> or email. You shouldn't text me or email me on my vacation. But what was surprising is the majority of the emails in the text actually came from people that I know who are outside of the church. And I began receiving uh, messages and people would even send me videos with, with things like, and you know, asking questions like, Todd, is COVID-19, is it one of the plagues that is mentioned in the book of Revelation? Todd, is the vaccine that is currently being worked on, is it 666, is it the number of the beast? Because a lot of people are saying that it's going to have a tracking element in it. Todd, certain places are, are no longer accepting cash. Isn't there somewhere in the book of Revelation that mentions towards the end of time that there will be a cashless society? Todd, the church in many places of America and in the world, they are being ordered not to meet in person. In some places, they're actually being told that they can't sing. Is this the beginning of the Antichrist system mentioned in the book of Revelation? 
So folks, with all of those questions and all of that inundating with videos and stuff surrounding the book of Revelation, I feel like I, I got my answer from the Lord about what book we're going to study. And I'll go ahead and let you know we are going to study the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the book that we're going to look at. I'm totally kidding. We're actually going to begin a study this morning on the book of Revelation. Uh, very excited about starting this study and in this book. And um, while we're not going to look at every single chapter or every single verse uh, from the book, we are going to look at a big majority of it so that we can come away with the core message uh, that what this book actually tries to communicate to us. And um, I don't know how long we're going to be in this series. Uh, we will be in it for some time, again, to be able to get the heart of the message of the book. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll experience the second coming of Jesus before we finish up this book. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into the book of Revelation, if you will. How about turning to chapter 1? And we're going to look this morning for our introduction at verses 1 through 8. And before we get started, how about typing this in as well in the comment section below? It is the book of Revelation, singular, and not the book of Revelations, plural. It's the book of Revelation. So here we go, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. Stay there because we're going to come back and I'm going to pull some of these verses out a little bit later on in the message. So here's what we read. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I'll take that. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that as we begin to look at your word, Father, I pray that you would bless us. As, as we read in these uh, opening verses, these opening words about being able to hear and to read these words. And Father, as we begin this journey through the book of Revelation, I pray that you would help us not only to hear them, but to also take the words that is mentioned in the truth that is mentioned in this book to heart. Father, I pray that you would just give us a deeper revelation of who you are, that you would bring hope, that we would find hope in these words, that we would find encouragement. And, Father, that we could know beyond the shadow of a doubt, as, as we're going to see in this book, that you present yourself as the faithful and the true witness, Jesus. You're faithful and true, and that means that you don't lie. And everything that you say in this book and everything that you say about us and everything that you say about how the world will one day be is true. 
and it will happen. So, Father, Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you'd open our hearts, you'd open our minds, and speak to us through your word. And we pray and we ask these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Now, I don't want to be overly simplistic, but at the same time, I can say this without any sort of hesitation. And that is this, and that is that the book of Revelation, it has one primary theme or one primary big idea, if you want to put it that way. And that theme and that big idea is this, and that is God wins. God wins. That's it. With all of the different weird imagery and, and, and symbolism and images that we see throughout this book, the primary message that John is trying to communicate, it, communicate to us through this book is that God wins. That's it. In fact, folks, that's really all that you and I need to know about the book of Revelation is that God wins. But at the same time, there's a lot of really exciting details in regards to how God wins. And so over the next several weeks, however long we're going to be in this, we're going to consider a lot of these really exciting details of how God wins that is mentioned throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, I just said revelations. I just countered my own thing there. Revelation. So anyhow, but this remarkable and sometimes challenging book, it explains to us how God rescues and redeems his people. It, it explains to us and shows us how God defeats Satan and how he routes evil and how he brings justice and peace to planet Earth and, and how he transforms the creation. And eventually and eternally, he will dwell amongst us forever. Ever and ever and ever. And folks, I, I can't conceive of another book in the Bible that is more relevant to our day and time than the book of Revelation. And folks, it isn't relevant to us because it provides for us some sort of code or some sort of blueprint uh, predicting the end of the world, as many people, and unfortunately, how they view this book. Folks, if you think Revelation was given to answer all of your speculative questions about current events and, and how it all leads up to Jesus' return, you're probably going to be somewhat disappointed throughout this series. So I'll go ahead and let you know I'm not setting any dates. There's not going to be any date setting in regards to the return of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is this, is because the book of Revelation is in our Bibles ultimately to reassure or reassure suffering Christians that through all time and through all, all ages for those believers that God wins. God wins. This world is not the end. This is not the final statement that we are living in, but God ultimately wins. And folks, to the degree that you and I have been led to think otherwise about how to interpret this book, if we just think of it as some sort of predictive prophecy of when Jesus returns, then we have really somehow missed what the ultimate message is throughout the book of Revelation. So with that, for our introduction here this morning, I want us to consider a few things that, that we see in the opening verses of, of this first chapter here that's going to help us to be able to understand and to interpret uh, the book of Revelation in a healthy way. And the first thing that I want us to notice is this, is that when you read the book Revelation, that comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. How about everybody saying apocalypsis? 
And that word apocalypsis is where we get our word apocalypse or apocalyptic from. Now, it would be my guess that maybe even some of you, but I know in my experience that a majority of people, the average person, when they hear the word apocalypse or they hear the word apocalyptic, the first thing that usually pops up in their mind is things like earthquakes or tidal waves or famines and nuclear bombs going off. They, they associate it with the end and the destruction of the world. But folks, that's not what the word apocalyptic or apocalyptic, uh, you know, apocalypse means. The word for apocalypse in the Greek, it means to be revealed. It means to reveal something. It means something that is being unveiled or something that is uncovered. And we see right from the very beginning of this book that the book is the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus. It is the unveiling. It is the revealing of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see, it is the revealing of Jesus's kingship, of how he rules and he, he is the Lord over all history and how he is the rightful king and ruler of this world. It is the unveiling. It is the apocalypse of Jesus. So that's one thing. The other thing that we need to understand, and, then, and there's over the history, there's been somewhat of a debate about this, about who actually authored this book. But the majority of scholars would tell you, and they agree, that it's the Apostle John. Right? The writer in this book identifies himself as John some four times throughout the book. And I, again, I agree. I think this was the Apostle John who also wrote the Gospel of John, as well as the epistles of John throughout the New Testament. Another debate amongst this, uh, the book is this, is when it was written. There are, there are some who will contend that the book was written in the 60s. And when I say the 60s, I don't mean the 1960s. I mean the first century 60s, right around you know, 60 AD. And it was written just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD during the Jewish and the Roman War. Now, I hold to the, to the view that it was written during the 90s. It was written uh, during the reign of Emperor Domitian, right around 95 AD. So I'm going to hold the view throughout this series that it was written by the Apostle John and that it was written during the 90s. And when John wrote this, he was, he was probably an old man. John was more than likely in his 90s. He wrote it while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos for preaching the gospel. So I'm going to contend it was written in the 90s, and it's written by the Apostle John. Now, with that in mind, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, as I've just mentioned, there is a lot of debate about this book, and there has been a lot of debate about it throughout church history. And the big debate is how should one interpret it? Again, there's a lot of crazy symbolism and images in it. In fact, it was almost not even included in the canon of Scripture because of all the wildness and the different scenes that you see in there. But again, there's these different views. And so what we're going to do throughout this series is we're going to look at the three most popular views that you will see throughout church history in regards to how people interpret this book. 
And so for our time here this morning, I'm just going to briefly give you, you know, an idea of what each of these three most popular views espouse. And then throughout this series, we're going to come back and look more in detail at each of these three different views. So with that simply stated, some Christians will advocate for what is called the preterist view of this book. And preterist, it comes from the Latin word to where it means gone by or it means the past. And so for those who hold the preterist view, they will say that, hey, this book was written in the decade of the 60s, right before the, the Jewish destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem was laid waste in 70 AD. So they will say and they will contend that much, if not all of what you read, except for the second coming of Jesus Christ, well, it's already happened. It, it's already been fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So again, there are those who hold the preterist view who will say that what you read in Revelation has already happened. It is all in the past, or most of it. And then another view that is on the complete, I would say almost complete opposite end of the spectrum. And I will say this, this is the most popular view here in America. Maybe even 95% of you who are listening right now, whether you realize it or not, you would hold to this view, and that is what's known as the futurist perspective. And, and just so you know, the, those goofy left-behind Kirk Cameron movies, cheesy movies, that espouses the futurist view. I, Kirk Cameron's a great guy, but some of those movies were kind of cheesy. The books were, were a little bit better, but it presents the futurist view. And those who hold the futurist view will contend that virtually everything from Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 all the way through the end of Revelation chapter 19 verse 21 is concerned what will happen in a specific seven-year period towards the end of history known as the Great Tribulation. So in other words, all of those judgments from God that you see in the form of the seven seals and, and the trumpets and the bowls, those are described events that have yet to happen. That is all in the future. So you have the preterist view, which is the past. You have the futurist view, which says it's in the future. And then you have the idealist view. And the idealist view will contend that the book of Revelations and the prophecies there, they're not so much concerned with any specific period of time or event or series of events in church history, but rather its primary purpose is to describe symbolically and through figurative language uh, the, the, the conflict between good and evil and the battle that has raged on throughout church history between God and his kingdom and Satan's kingdom. So, so it's more of a timeless portrayal of this epic and ethical struggle between good and evil and God and the devil. So again, those are the three primary views that you have that we're going to look at in more detail throughout the upcoming weeks. And some of you might be thinking, well, Todd, what view do you hold? What view do you hold out of those three? Well, I'll go ahead and let you know. During the first part of my Christianity, probably the first five or six years, I held strictly to the futuristic view. And the reason for that is because that was the only view that I had ever been taught. That was the only view of how to interpret this book that I'd ever been exposed to. 
But once I came into the Vineyard movement and I was exposed to, uh, you know, theologians like George Elton Ladd and N.T. Wright and Greg Boyd and John Stott and Sam Storms, I, I began to change my view of how to interpret this book. And I'll go ahead and let you know where I've landed. There's not really a name for it. I will contend, and I believe, that each of these three views have elements of truth to them. They all present a certain element of truth. For example, the, the, the preterist view that says that this has happened in the past. Well, I will say, and, and uh, we'll see, that there has been part of this book that has already taken place in the past. Let's not forget that it was written originally to local churches, right? Like us here at GCV, it was written to seven of them. And so therefore, whatever John says in the book of Revelation, since it was written to originally seven literal churches, well, it has to be able to apply and to be relevant to those who lived in the first century. Right? So it has to apply to them. But it also describes events that have happened throughout church history. And I will say that it is also describing events that are taking place now. And yes, it is also describing events that will take place just prior to the second coming of Christ. So again, I will say that you have all of these different views that hold a certain amount of truth to them. And that there are some, again, you have to look at the idealistic view, that with some of these things that you see taking place here, that it is in a symbolic and in a figurative way describing you know, the battle between good and evil and God and the devil. So again, I will sit here and say that their, their views, these three views, have truth. All three contend and have certain elements of truth to it. So with that, a couple more things here that's going to help us to understand this book. So going back to verse 1 and verse 3, you'll notice that John says this, that the contents of this book concerns what soon must take place and that the time is near. So again, one of, one of the big debates in this book is, is what exactly, when John talks about that these events, that, that they are soon, and that they are near, and that they will come quickly, what do such statements mean? Now, again, those who hold the preterist view, they will say that you and I, when we look at the words near, and soon, and quickly, that we should take them quite literally. So, that, again, they'll say that John, what he is saying is that the events that are taking place in Revelation, again, they were written just before or during AD 60, and they're happening soon, and they'll be fulfilled in 70 AD. So the predators will say, hey, no, you need to take those quite literally. And then other people will say, no, no, the words near and shortly and soon, they mean that once the appointed time arrives, well, then the events will start taking place rather quickly. They'll move really quick once they start to happen. And then others will point to 2 Peter chapter 3.8. I'm sure most of us are familiar with this, this scripture where Peter says that, you know, to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And people will argue that, you know, when Peter was writing that, and this is true, that he was addressing people that were scoffing at Christianity because Jesus hadn't returned yet. 
And so Peter talks about, hey, time is different in regards to God. And so some will say that when John is, is saying things like near and quickly and soon, he's not writing from our perspective of time and how we interpret it, but rather he is writing it in regards to the perspective of God. What, what is time to God? And then others will say, no, no, what it means is this, is when he says near and soon and quick, he's talking about imminence. That John's point is that the events could transpire at any time, even soon, and that God's people should always be ready at any time for Jesus to come back and these things to happen. Now, personally, I agree with John Stott in regards to what he has to say about soon and near and the language of what that means. And what John Stott argues, and I think he argues very convincingly, is that what John is doing there with those words is that he is substituting for the Old Testament prophet Daniel's words where he speaks about the latter days. One of the things that's very interesting about the book of Revelation that I think a lot of people don't get is that one of the best ways and one of the ways that helps us to interpret what is being communicated to us in the book of Revelation is to go back to the Old Testament. Passages from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation are mentioned some 400 different times. John mentions passages from the Old Testament. And one of the best, one of the books that, that really lines up and helps us to understand the book of Revelation is the Old Testament book of Daniel. And so John Stott will say that, you know, the language behind, you know, soon and, and quickly, that John again is substituting the Old Testament words of Daniel in the latter days. If you read the book of Daniel, you're going to see there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of the same symbolism in the book of Daniel and a lot of the same symbolism in the book of Revelation. And so Daniel talks about sealing up the prophecy that he had written about until the last days, until the end times. So if you go back into the 6th century BC when Daniel wrote his prophecy, he said again that those things that he wrote about, that those are for the latter days. Those were in somewhere in the distant future. And John is saying, well, wait, now those things that Daniel prophesied about, they are now being applied to my own time in the here and now all the way up until the second coming of Christ. So what Daniel expected to occur in the distant latter days, John is expecting to begin quickly in his day and in his time. So prophetic fulfillment has already begun in his time, but it's a process. It's not something that happens instantaneously, but rather it is something that occurs over time through a variety of events that we're going to see throughout this series. Now, I know some of you may be thinking about this right now, especially with everything that is transpiring in our day and in the time that we find ourselves in and with a lot, I mean, a good plethora of the folks that sent me different messages and questions about this book, one of the questions that people kept asking me over and over and over again is, Todd, are we living in the last days? Is this it? Is this the end times? Are we in the last days? And I'll go ahead and answer your question if you're wondering the same thing yourself. And I will say... Unequivocally, yes, we are living in the last days. We are living in the end times. In fact, 
The very moment you were born into this world, you began living in the end of all things if you're on planet Earth. Right? The very moment that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, then end times began for us here on planet Earth. The New Testament it, it is very specific. It repeats itself over and over and over again and calls it this age that we find ourselves living in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. It calls it the end. It is the end times. It is the last days. And so the point is this, is what was future to Daniel is now being fulfilled in John's day and would continue to unfold and occur until the time of Jesus' return. So when John wrote his letter to the seven churches and they began to read the letters that John wrote to them, they could say, wow, you know what? This stuff is happening now. It's taking place right here and right now in our time, in our day. And the things that Daniel in his book that are yet to come, they are now unfolding and will continue to transpire into the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's where I have landed in regards to how to interpret, you know, language like near and soon, and it's close with that. Also, I want you to notice something else in verse 1. And you won't notice this in your English translation of the Bible that you read. Going back to verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. Again, you won't see this in the English, but in the Greek, where we read to show, in the Greek, that is a verb. And that verb literally means to signify by using symbols and by using images. So you and I, right up front, in the very opening verses of this book, we are told that John is writing to us and writing a book in symbolic and figurative language using all kinds of bizarre imagery that we're going to see. You're going to see throughout this book that there are like seven-headed beasts and people are eating scrolls and frogs are crawling out of bottomless pits. So there's all of this bizarre and symbolic language that is there. And folks, I'll go ahead and let you know, this is where a lot of people get into a lot of trouble when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation because they miss that, that most of what you see written in the book of Revelation is written in symbolic and figurative language. So you and I, we need to be very careful, very careful when it comes to pressing certain things in the book, literally. Now, don't misunderstand me. Is everything written in the book of Revelation true? Yeah, you bet it is. But that does not mean that all of the images and symbols that we are going to see throughout the book are literally true. They can also be symbolically true. And so again, we're going to see in this book, it communicates to us very often truth in symbolic and figurative kind of language, language that you and I don't really speak to, you know, in these type of days. We usually try to speak to each other very literal in a very little sense. And we're going to see many examples of this, but I'll go ahead and give you an example of what I mean by this right here, right now. 
Now, towards the end of the book, I think some of you may be even familiar with this certain passage. We are told that when Jesus returns, that Jesus will come back riding on a white horse. And as Jesus comes out of the clouds riding on a white horse, he's going to be shooting swords out of his mouth. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you literally take that true? When Jesus comes back, is Jesus literally going to come back riding on a white horse, shooting swords out of his mouth? Now, I will say this. Look, Jesus is God. He can do what he wants. So if Jesus comes back literally riding on a white horse and shooting swords out of his mouth, he can do that. But I don't think that that's what John is ultimately trying to communicate to us in a literal fashion. And here's why. Because his original audience knew that during the, in the Roman Empire, whenever a Roman general would be off at war and off at battle, and then after they would win the war and, and they were victorious, they would come in, the generals would enter into the gates of Rome riding on a white horse that symbolized ultimate victory. So the truth that, that, that John is ultimately trying to tell us when Jesus is going to come back riding on a white horse is that Jesus comes back as the ultimate victor. He is the ultimate conqueror. And that sword coming out of his mouth, well, we can see in other places of the Bible that God's word, that the words of Jesus, the words of God are oftentimes referred to and described as what? A double-edged sword. So what Jesus or what John is ultimately telling us is, look, Jesus ultimately wins. He is the ultimate victor. He comes back winning ultimately as the ultimate conqueror. And he doesn't conquer by brute force, but rather he overthrows and conquers his enemies by his truth and by the word that proceeds from his mouth. That's one example. But again, we're going to see a lot of examples of this, of how, again, John uses figurative language, descriptive language that we're not always to take literally. But even though the truth that he is saying and presented is something that is literally true. So with that, what I want to do, I'm going to wrap up things here. Again, I just wanted to, for the introduction, give us a few things that's going to help us as we start to dive in deeper and dig in deeper uh, next week as we start to look at this book again more in a more detailed way. But I want to spend just a couple of moments here uh, giving us a couple of things that we see in chapter one that I think is very important for us to know, especially during this time that we're in. And these two things are all that you'll see these two things repeated over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. So two things quickly that we need, two truths that we see. And the first thing is this, and that is Jesus has ultimate power and authority. John in chapter 1 verse 5 says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, when you read that, I know for me, when I, when I read that, if I'm honest, one of the things that first pops up in my head, that, that Jesus is the ruler. He has ultimate power and authority over all the kings of the earth. Is that the first thing that pops up in my head is, man, it sure doesn't seem that way sometimes. In fact, I will say it often doesn't seem that way. 
But see, this is one of the really cool things about the book of Revelation. Is that its original audience, they too were living in a time very similar to us. To where we, we see what's transpiring on the news. We, we look at those who, who are our leaders and we see, you know, they don't really seem to care about the people that they say that they lead. They seem to be only more concerned about procuring more power and a more, more authority for themselves. But John, in this book, through, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, he, he sort of, you know, Jesus, through John, peels back the layers in behind the scenes of history and reveals to us, no, even though it may not always see that way, Jesus has ultimate power and authority. He is the ruler over all of history. And even though it may not seem that way, it's still true. And that is Jesus has ultimate power and authority over Vladimir Putin. Jesus has ultimate power and authority over Kim Jong-un. Jesus has ultimate power and authority over Donald Trump. Jesus has ultimate power and authority over Joe Biden. Jesus has ultimate power and authority over the Democratic and Republican parties. Jesus has ultimate power and authority over everyone and everything. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation over and over again. Jesus, through his servant John, saying to his people, to his servants, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And again, I know it's so easy, especially during the time that we see ourselves in. Again, this is one of the reasons why this book is so relevant. The original audience, they were going through a very stressful time, a very difficult time, a time of hardship and difficulty. And they, too, needed to be reminded that Jesus was and is large and in charge. How about everybody typing in that? Jesus is large and in charge. They needed to know that. And, folks, I think we need to know that, too. That even though the world seems like it's all gone to hell in a handbasket, the pandemic, all of the chaos, all of the, the, the you know, separation between one another, all the vitriol stuff that's going on, the world just seems crazy. And it seems like nobody's in control. Is anybody in control of this? And John says, yes, yes. There is someone who has ultimate power authority over everyone and everything and his name is Jesus Christ and even though you may not see it he has sovereignty he has control over your life and one day the same Jesus who laid down his life for us on the cross is coming back as the king of kings and the lord of lords and his kingdom will come to complete fruition and one day will overtake the entire world so John says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. The second thing, the last thing that we need to be reminded of this morning that we're going to see again over and over again throughout this series is that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Going back to Revelation 1, verse 5. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins because of his blood. Now this is very interesting. Because this passage right here, where we're told that he loves us. 
This is the only place in the entire New Testament to where we are told that Jesus loves us in the present tense. All of the other passages in, in the New Testament where it's spoken of Jesus is love for us. It's written in the past tense that Jesus loved us. But here, John is saying to his original audience, and he is saying to us in the present tense, Jesus loves you. So John wants you to know, and he wants I to know, that no matter what you and I may endure, no matter you know, what, how bad our circumstances may be, Jesus always has, always will, and always, even in the present moment that you find yourself in now, he loves you. And his heart beats with passion for his people. And I know... One of the things that I often get, I know this is hard. It's so hard sometimes to, to, to accept that Jesus loves me. You know, a lot of people, I know I hear this. One of the things that I hear as a pastor over and over again, how can Jesus love me? He may love you. He may love those people over there. But, man, I so struggle with Jesus loving me personally. How do I know that he really loves me and I know I struggle with this sometimes too. But see, John gives us an answer. We just read it. John says, you, you, do you want to know how Jesus and you want to know why Jesus loves you? Because he says that he has freed us from our sins by his blood. If you want to know and if you truly want to know, and, and, and if you struggle with believing, one of the things that I always do when I struggle, Jesus, I'm going through such a rough time. It's so hard. Do you really love me? And I hear that whisper from the Holy Spirit saying, yes, God, I love you. I've always loved you. I will love you. There's nothing that you can ever say or do that will ever cause me not to love you. And I love you here in this present moment that you find yourself in. And if you don't believe me, just look at the cross. The Apostle Paul echoes this. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20. Paul writes, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who love me. Well, how do you know that, Paul? How do you know Jesus loves you? He goes on, he says, because he gave himself for me. Paul in Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us. Well, how, how do we know that Christ loved us? Paul goes on to say again, because he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do you know Jesus loves you? How do you know Jesus loves you in this moment right now, regardless of what circumstances you may be facing, regardless of how fearful you may be of what's coming next in our world? We don't know what's coming next, but even if the world falls apart worse than what it is right now, we have been given this hope. We have been given this truth 
from the book of Revelation that even though it may not always seem like it, Jesus is still in control in all of this craziness, in all of this mess that we find ourselves in. It is heading someplace. It is leading someplace to where God wins. And in the midst of all the difficulty and the hardship that we face as the people of God, we have the promise that Jesus loves us. And how do we know it? Because he gave himself for us on the cross. One of the things that I've been challenged to do is, is I've been studying this book. Is that throughout the day is, is to just pray and to recite these words. You know, Jesus, how do I know? Help me to be able to receive. And I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. It's very simple. It's not rocket science. Maybe when you get up in the morning, maybe during your lunch break, maybe before you go to bed. Just say, you know, Holy Spirit, I sometimes struggle with being able to receive and to know if Jesus really loves me. And again, one of the things I've been doing is, okay, Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me to know. Would you help me to take these words from my head and would you place them down deep into my heart, into the depths of my soul, that Jesus loves me present tense. Why? Because he gave himself for me. And he shed his blood for the removal of my sin and yours. I want to close with this. Again, we're going to see all this, what I'm getting ready to read. It's just really a summary of what I've just read and what we've just gone over the past little bit. But we're going to see all this in detail over the next few weeks. All this wild and crazy and wonderful details that we find in, in the book of Revelation. But I end with a summa, summation from John Stott about the book of Revelation. So this is a summary of where we're going to go and what we're going to unpack. The seven churches of Asia Minor who are addressed at the start of Revelation needed to know that Jesus loved them and was king despite all appearances to the contrary and that their faithfulness would be rewarded. They were trying to make sense of their hardship despite the reality of Christ sitting on the throne. Can we need to know that too. By seeing the original message of Revelation, we are better able to see its relevance for us today. We too live with the tension of suffering and evil in a world where Jesus is Savior and Lord. While Jesus is on the throne, the beast continues to attack. Believers are called to persevere through suffering. Revelation is not a prediction of escape from suffering. Rather, it's a promise of future deliverance and reward for those who remain faithful while suffering. The point isn't even that there will be a specific great tribulation. Rather, John acknowledges the suffering and chaos of our world that was prevalent in his own day and continues into our own present time and how God triumphs and wins through Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation promises that our tears will be wiped away, our enemies sent away, and our world restored to harmony. We will continue our priestly calling alongside Christ, bringing healing to the nations. And God will dwell among his people here on earth forever and ever. Amen. So worship team comes back up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray.
I pray right now for those of us here this morning. Again, I know it's so easy to be able to look at the world and the current circumstances that we find ourselves in in this world. So much seems to be so confusing. There's just so much anger and so much hurt and pain and, and confusion and strife. But Father, I pray that you would help us as we go through this book again to take heart what its original intent and message is. And that is you win. You win. That this battle between good and evil and life and death and love and hate, that this has been an ongoing struggle and battle throughout all of church history and it's going to continue into the day that you come. That you bring your kingdom to its complete fruition. That the ultimate expression of your reign and your rule and your lordship and your love and your grace and your justice and your truth will prevail. You win. Help us to see that eventually good triumphs over evil. Truth triumphs over lies. Justice triumphs over injustice. Life triumphs over death. And you triumph over our enemy, the devil. You win. And Father, I pray right now for whoever who needs to know and be reassured of your power and your authority. Just pray, Holy Spirit, right now. Wherever it is that we find ourselves here this morning, Holy Spirit, you're ubiquitous, you're everywhere. I just pray if we're watching in our living rooms, if we're watching uh, you know, in our dining room, wherever we're at, Holy Spirit, I just pray for you to fall, for you to comfort and encourage your people. In the same way that you influenced John to say uh, to his original audience, say to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, little flock. Do not be afraid. And Father, I also pray for those of us who need uh, a dose and need to be able to experience your love. I just pray, Father, for a deeper revelation of your love for them and your love for us. And the best way that we can see how you loved us in a sacrificial, self-giving way is through your sacrifice for us on the cross. Just pray for a deeper revelation of that. Father, help us to see as we shall see throughout this book. Help us not to confuse life and our circumstances in this crazy, mixed up and fallen world with you and your love for us. And so, Father, I pray that as we sing this last song, I pray that you would just help us and give us a glimpse and a revelation of your goodness and your greatness and how great our wonderful God is. Our God who wins and at some point will set everything right and right every wrong that has ever happened in this world. Lord, we love you and we thank you that we have that hope and that future promised by you to us. And we love you and we worship you for it. And we pray and we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.